we come to the preaching of God's Word, and so take your copy of God's Word and open to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and as we often do, let's begin by reading the portion of Scripture that will be our focus this morning. John chapter 7, verses 25 to 36. saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, speaking and saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, but will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? The passage that we're going to be in today really presents two disturbing realities. Two realities that ought to give every single one of us a a moment to pause for a moment. The first pertains to knowing God, that it's possible to be deceived about whether or not you know God. That it's possible to think that you know God, when in reality you don't. And the second pertains to the limited amount of time that each one of us has to seek Him. That there comes a point in time in our lives when our time is up. When God can no longer be found, whether it's death or or whether our mind goes or or whether the, the hardening effects of sin upon our lives just takes us to the point of no return. You have a limited amount of time to be reconciled to God. Two disturbing realities that I think this truth comes forth loud and clear from the portion of Scripture that we're going to be reading this morning. Let's take a moment to recreate the historical setting. It's the the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, a a week-long festival commemorating Israel's wanderings in the desert and how God had preserved her and led her in that time. And thousands upon thousands have flooded Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. As the feast was nearing, the the brothers of Jesus challenged him to make a grand entry. They had grown impatient since Jesus had seemingly taken himself out of the limelight. So they wanted him to, to go up to Jerusalem and make this grand public entry and show himself to the world for a speech. And yet Jesus knew it wasn't yet his time. So instead of going up with the throng and arriving at the feast at the time when all of these thousands upon thousands would have been arriving instead he went up as if 
at some point during the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began to teach, which in and of itself was a bold move since he was now stepping on the turf of the very ones who wanted to kill him, the religious leaders of Israel. And the response wasn't good. The religious leaders were disturbed by his teaching, questioning both its source and authority. And so Jesus makes a provocative claim in verse 16. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Claiming God the Father is both the source and authority of his teaching. Because, of course, it's one thing to claim, and yet another to prove. But instead of appealing to his works, as he often does and often will, Jesus actually exposes their unwillingness to do God's will. That the reason they're questioning the source and authority of his teaching is because they don't want to do the will of God and never have. Verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Which clearly means they were not willing. Otherwise, they would have recognized the source and authority of his teaching. They would have even recognized him as the one whom the Old Testament promised would come. And then Jesus makes another provocative claim. Claiming to speak the glory of God to such an extent that there was no unrighteousness in him. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself, insert here, the scribes and Pharisees, his own glory, but he who is speaking the glory of the one who sent him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him, sinless perfection. Which was a bone of contention, wasn't it? Their issue with Jesus was that he healed a man on the Sabbath. And so they were actually thinking of him as a lawbreaker, one who had violated the law of Moses, a transgressor of the law. And so Jesus then turns the tables on them and proves that it wasn't him who had broken the Sabbath. It was, in fact, them who had broken the Sabbath because they were using the Sabbath to justify not doing good to a man. And so Jesus wasn't the Sabbath breaker. He wasn't the, the, the violator of the law of Moses. It was them that were. And all of this is evidence that they do not know God. They believe they know God. They think that they are the people of God, but they do not know him. And Jesus is going to state that in the clearest terms possible. They do not know God, which is just loaded with irony because, again, this is the covenant people of God. They're at the feast to worship God in response to the command of the old covenant. They were the ones who who, who claimed above all people in the earth to know God. And yet Jesus says they do not know God. And so in this discourse again, we're going to see two disturbing realities, a reality that deserves each one of us to give strictest attention to. And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. The first disturbing reality. The first disturbing reality. We're going to see it in verses 25 to 31. Look at verse 25. Some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, is not this the man? He may have spoken of himself. 
the, the third group that has chimed in in this uh, narrative. We have heard from the religious leaders of Israel, referred to as the Jews in verse 15, who took offense at the teaching of Jesus. We then heard from the crowd, more or less made up of the, the, the pilgrims, the, the thousands upon thousands who had traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, and, and they were seemingly unaware that the religious leaders wanted to kill him. When Jesus asked the question of, why is it that you want to kill me, the, the crowd actually responds by saying, who is it that wants to kill you? You have a demon. And they just 
they haven't connected that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, since after all, he's the Nazarene and grew up in Nazareth and is now living in Galilee of Capernaum, or Capernaum of Galilee, rather. And so the question is, what is going on here? How could they be saying at this juncture, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from? Well, it reflects a a popular notion that when Messiah would arrive, he would appear suddenly. That he would appear suddenly. Not that he would not be of flesh and blood, not that he would not be of the tribe of David, not that he would not be born in Bethlehem, but that when he appeared onto the scene, he would arrive suddenly. And if you wanted to kind of pinpoint where that would come from, you might look to some of the passages in the Old Testament that point to the second coming of Christ. Because those passages depict a, a, sudden, a sudden appearance, but there's a, another passage in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, and Malachi is just the last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 3, there's a, a portion of scripture that really dovetails nicely with what we're seeing in John 7, and would have been a passage they would have appealed to, to support the notion that the Messiah would come sort of out of nowhere, as it were. In Malachi 3 and verse 1, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and so here is God speaking, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so Malachi 3.1 was a, a prophetic passage that described the sudden arrival of the Messiah the temple. Now Jesus, in John 7, he is in the temple, and he has, in a sense, arrived in a, in a sudden way, at least in a way for this feast, but they know that he's been on the scene for a number of years now, a few years, and he's been performing signs and wonders, and they, they're even aware of his family. They know his parents. John 6.42, for example, expresses the same sentiment. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And so they were puzzled because they knew Jesus. He'd been around. They had seen him perform his signs and his wonders. And so he wasn't fitting their description of a sudden arrival, sudden coming Messiah. And so the objection in verse 27 is not a denial that the Messiah would come from the Davidic lineage, that he was born in Bethlehem. It was just a, an objection born out of the manner in which Jesus had come onto the scene. He was coming onto the scene in a non-sudden manner. And so in this sort of confusion, then, verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple, speaking and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is he whom you do not know. That Jesus cried out there refers to a, a loud and public proclamation. Jesus cries out in the temple, and the words here almost depict a, a prophetic thrust behind these words, a, a thrust that's even more amplified by the fact that Jesus proclaims them in the temple itself. And so Jesus here cries out in the temple and began saying, you both know me and know where I am from. Which at least to some extent was true. They understood to some extent that he was from Galilee, that he had been raised in Nazareth, that maybe even at this point in time his base of operation was Capernaum. They may have known 
failed to realize that he'd been born in Bethlehem. And so even their knowledge of his natural origin, his earthly origin, was deficient. But there was also a sense in which they didn't know him. And they didn't know him with regard to what? His heavenly origin. His divine mission. That he has been commissioned by the Father. That he was there and on the scene, not on his own initiative, but on on account of the Father's will and direction. And so Jesus indicates just that much. That he's not there on his own initiative. He says there, declaring, I am not, I have not come of myself. My coming is not from me. It's not of me. I'm not here on my own accord. He declares that he who sent me is true and the idea is real, which is to say that, listen, if you reject me, then you're rejecting the one who sent me and the one who sent me is the one you must reckon with. Jesus has been commissioned by the Father to reveal the Father. And so a rejection of the revelation that had come in the Son through Jesus was a rejection of that mission. And so it's in this more ultimate sense that they neither know Jesus nor know where he's from. And this is the sense that really counts because this is the sense in which how you respond to Jesus has eternal consequences. So they're there to worship the Father. They're there to commemorate the Father's work in their history, and yet they don't even know Him. And the evidence they don't know Him is their rejection of the Son. They don't recognize the Son, and yet to see the Son is to see the Father. So if they can look at the Son and not recognize Him, then they can't recognize the Father either. Father known, having been sent by the Father to do the Father's will. 
And so Jesus had both the knowledge and the authority to declare to them, they do not This is our Lord's words in Matthew 11, verse 7. Now, therefore, all authority has been given to him for me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I mean, not only in Matthew 11, 27, is Jesus emphasizing the exclusivity of knowing the Father through the Son, but he's even declaring that the the will that directs whether or not a person is, is, is comes to the knowledge of the Father is through the Son. And anyone to whom the Son reveals his will to reveal him. And this is the exclusivity of the Father. The Father and the Son are a package deal. This is why Jesus said to the often rehearsed, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me because you cannot come to the Father but through the Son. Therefore, one must come unto him to have any knowledge of him. And you can imagine this was confrontational, provocative, offensive. Jesus shows up in the temple on the curb of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the, the whole Sanhedrin, and he begins to tell them, they do not know God. John 6, the crowd that was 
for three seasons because we had fed the 5,000. And then when Jesus revved up the, 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 the teaching that he was proclaiming to them, they ended up walking away saying, this is a difficult statement. Who can accept it?
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is something that every one of us needs to reckon with and, 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 and address in our own lives through personal examination. I'm not going to provide a word of comfort every Sunday. We need to feel the weight of this. Every one of us has a day of reckoning with Jesus, and no one else is going to be there to support us. It's going to be us and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the issue is going to be, are we those who have done the will of God and to do the will of God, you've got to be given the ability to do the will of God, which means you must be born from above to do the will of God. You've got to be saved by grace to do the will of God. And we need to be absolutely careful about this. Because we are planning to not doing well enough who does the will of God, one who knows God. So 
verse 11 says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of the Lord. People would stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They would go to and fro to seek the Lord, but they would not find him. The word of the Lord was completely is seeking to be seeking to be found and, and seeking to find God and yet will not find him is expressed throughout the scriptures.
that later, and something comes first. Either death arrives uh, a moment before they realize it would, and their time is up, and they cannot seek the Lord, or their mind will go. Just think of our province alone. There are no doubt homes with folks who are elderly, who have lost their minds, and can't even appreciate the significance of the gospel and righteousness. There's a time when the mind no longer works like it once did, or they will be so hardened in sin, they will refuse to come to Christ because they'll be so dead in their trespasses and sins that they've gone to the point of no return. And so there is so much presumption and procrastination. It assumes you'll have another day. It assumes you'll have another moment. It assumes there's more time. And yet none of us know the moment that our lives will be revitalized. No one can prognosticate the parting of that Dead Sea, I promise you. And none of us realize our mind is going when it is going. And so the call of this passage is to seek the Lord while he may be found. To seek him while he may be found. And that's actually the language of Isaiah 55, for example, to seek the Lord while he may be found. In fact, don't even turn there for a moment. Look at what Jesus will say in a second. He's going to say this in verse 37 and following in chapter 7. He says, Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And now listen to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 is an invitation This is a time when the Lord may be found. This is a time to seek the Lord. And here is an invitation. And the preacher is essentially God himself. Isaiah 55 begins, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money or without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Verse 6 of Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's an invitation that's extended at this time that if you don't know the Lord, to come unto him, to seek him while he may be found, to turn from your wickedness and unrighteousness and to look to Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the one who laid down his life for the forgiveness of sins. This is the moment. This is the time. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Now is the day of salvation. This is the acceptable time. Now is the time to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not tomorrow. Not a week from now. Not a month from now. But today. The disturbing reality of this passage, this section of Scripture, is that there's a limit on the amount of time that each one of us has And so not only is it possible to believe you know God when in reality you don't, it's also possible that you will come to the place where you 